God, the Ephesian letter, we pray that you will feed our souls. Now, church, would you just breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. Renew my mind tonight and build me up in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. In your mighty name, we pray. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. It's going to be good tonight. God bless you. All righty. I love the book of Ephesians. It is next to Romans, it's tops. Now, it's all the word of God, but Ephesians is profound. Amen. And so uh, we're at part seven tonight, believe it or not. Three, we're going to look at three important commands, among other things. And uh, last time we closed with Paul's incredible faith in a God whose resources are inexhaustible. How many of you know that God's resources are inexhaustible? Amen. That's what he's telling us. And I want you to read this great verse with me because uh, there's no better way to put it than this, talking about the inexhaustible resources of God. Are you ready? Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. I could preach on that verse for four weeks. That is loaded. But there we're told that God's resources, both spiritually and materially, are inexhaustible. And really, the the limitation comes with our faith, not with God. So we need to believe in a great, big God. Amen? Amen. Because the bigger your God is, the more faith you have to believe for what some would call impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. Not anything. The Lord says... In Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. So as we begin now, chapter 4, Paul is going to move from deep theology. That's the way the book is divided. The first three chapters are deep theology, good theology. Tells us about God, about his plan for the church, how we fit into his plan for the ages, that we are people of destiny, that we were called and chosen before the worlds were created. All kinds of mind-blowing, mind-bending stuff. The second three chapters are practical, and they really teach us how to apply in practical ways what the first three chapters told us, okay? So Paul's main concern in the beginning of chapter 4 is the unity of of the church. The church will walk in unity. Now, I want you to understand tonight, church, that when a congregation loses unity, that congregation is in deep trouble because God's spirit dwells in unity. Didn't the psalmist say that? He said, where there is unity, God commands the blessing. You don't even have to pray for a blessing. When the church is in unity, God commands a blessing. How many of you would like to not even have to pray for a blessing, but living in a way that God commands a blessing on you? Well, that's, that's what he's showing us, that it's, it's very, very important the church walks in unity. Now, here, here's the key verse. He tells every believer, everyone, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know what he's telling us there? Unity is every church member's responsibility. We're all called to guard the unity of a house. So he, he's commanding all of us, make every effort. Don't let any, any, any strength, give all your strength, give all your ability, 
make the strongest effort you've got to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in the church. When the church loses unity, it loses its power, it loses its testimony, it loses its effectiveness, okay? Now, I believe it loses its blessing. Now, a church is like a marriage. It's made up of people who are different. Look at your neighbor and say, you're different from me. Come on. Now, look at the other side and say, you're really different from me. No, I'm kidding. We're all different, right? We're all different. And we have to understand that when church people come together, you've got a room full of different people. And where differences are, there is going to be what, everyone? Conflict. Conflict. Say it with me. Conflict in the house of God. Conflict. Paul's point is that true Christian unity can be attained in spite of differences. That's the idea. Because how many of you are married in here? Raise your hand. How many of you realize that if you were going to get along, you had to get along in spite of differences? And guess what? You probably married somebody very different from yourself. I got big amens from over here. Why is it that opposites attract? Because God wants us to have fun once we're married. Okay, so, so you get married, two different people have got to learn to live together in spite of differences, many of which are never going to change. Many of those differences are never going to change. You just have to learn to get along and you have to be two really good forgivers or it's not going to work. See, if you want to get rid of selfishness in your life, get married. Marriage will get rid of selfishness at warp speed, okay? Because you've got to be a good forgiver and you can't be selfish. Now, Paul says that's the way church is. So he's going to explain how that unity, unity in spite of differences, can be achieved. He's going to give us three commands on how to walk in unity. So let's look at the first one. The first one is, I want you to read it with me. Walk your talk. He said, if you're going to walk in unity, you're going to have to walk your talk. You're going to have to back up your words with action. He says in verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I want you to live a life that's worthy of the testimony of Christ. In other words, I want you to walk your talk. You say you're a believer, walk it out. Here's the deal, folks. We've been called to follow Jesus that we might become like him. That's God's ultimate plan for everyone in this room. It's not that you go to the mission field. It's not that you witness. It's not that you go to church. It's not that you worship. His ultimate goal and purpose for every believer is that we would be formed into the image of Christ. He likes Jesus so much, he wants a bunch of Jesuses walking around. So that's God's ultimate goal. That's, that's where Romans 8.28 comes in. He makes all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In the very next verse, he gives us the purpose, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's his purpose. So we're to live our lives in such a way that we bring credit to his name. That's a heavy responsibility. Everybody who agrees with that, say amen. amen. That's a heavy responsibility. Okay? As we often say, you may be the only Jesus 
some people ever see you. Trust me, if you've professed to know the Lord, I guarantee you, you're being watched. You're being watched at work. You're being watched at home if, if people in your house are not believers. Uh, you're being watched if you've made a testimony for Jesus. You're being watched. That's a heavy responsibility. Does that mean God expects you and I to be perfect? No, because I'm not and you're not. But sincere, yes. I'm not perfect, but I'm sincere in my desire to follow Jesus and my intent to be his disciple. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and if I really mean business with him, then he's going to chisel into me and into you the character of Christ. So the first command is to walk your talk. Now, the second command for maintaining unity, I want you to say it with me, get over yourself. Turn to your neighbor and say, get over yourself. Get over yourself. There are pastor people thinking about me all the time. No, they're not. You're not that important. Get over yourself. Our culture is obsessed with self. There's even a magazine called Self. But you know what? The New Testament, if you really follow the teachings of the New Testament, it'll get your eyes off of yourself and onto others, off of yourself and onto the Lord. Even going so far as to say, put others above yourself. So you're not number one. What is that billboard? I am second. I'm not first. So get over yourself. Let's look at the verse. Be completely humble. Verse 2. And gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. And I want you to notice he's telling you and I as believers, we take the low road, we humble ourselves, and we bear with one another. Let's look at a few of these words. The opposite of pride is humility. Christians are to walk in humility, not pride. And I'm going to give you a formula for how to get humble. You want to know how to humble yourself? Be truthful about yourself. And here's what I mean. When I admit to myself, I am what I am by the grace of God. That's what Paul said. He said, you want to know how I got where I am and how I love people and do what I've done and all these things I've accomplished? I am what I am by the grace of God. And whatever I'm not yet that is like Jesus, grace hasn't chiseled into me yet. But where I am right now, I am by the grace of God, not by self-effort, not by, uh, you know, self-improvement programs, not by New Year's resolutions, but I am what I am by the grace of God. And if you admit that to yourself, that is humbling. Because if we hadn't been touched by grace, none of us would be here tonight. We'd all be out there self-destructing in warp, in, 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 in overdrive. So Christians are to walk in humility. I am what I am by the grace of God. Pride, on the other hand, is deadly. Pride is so deadly. I've got a, I've got a fear of pride. If I can see pride rising up in me, I, I immediately will humble myself in the presence of the Lord because I fear pride because pride blinds you. It, when you're proud, it's only a matter of time before you fall. It's not if, it's when. Pride makes you have a self-inflated image of yourself. Prideful people have an overinflated opinion of their own importance. Did you know that Paul said that in Romans 12, 3? 
Look what he said. For, for the, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Let me paraphrase that. You're not all that. You're not all that. Nobody in here is all that. I don't know about you, but I have grown so weary of these strutting peacocks in Hollywood. These people who feel like when they walk out the front door, the whole world should look at them, and they are the sun, and we are the little planets that revolve around them and worship them as we spin. That pride, that overinflated image of yourself. The fact is we are what we are by the grace of God, and we're not all that. He said, think of yourself this way, that you would have sound judgment because God has allotted to each, each man a measure of faith. You know, God gave us faith. We got saved, convicted us of our sin. We got saved. And when you admit that and realize that, then it knocks the pride out of you. So, Paul, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think because when you do, then trouble is ahead. When proud people get their toes stepped on, or are rubbed the wrong way, or don't feel appreciated. You know what they begin to do? Now, I'm talking about in a, in a, in a body of believers because he's talking about unity in the church. But you can also bring this into your home. A home is a little church. A church is a big home. So when somebody proud gets their toes stepped on, rubbed the wrong way, they don't feel appreciated, they begin to gossip, they begin to complain, and their pride is hurt. And they cause trouble. They sow discord. Because, after all, who are you to do what you did to me? Because I am all that. The only solution to this is to choose humility. Giving our offenses to the Lord and trusting him with the things that irritate and offend. You know, life is full of offenses. Anybody realize that yet? Life is full of irritations. and Anybody, if you go through one day without being irritated or offended, I want to meet you. I want to know where you live, and I want to know how you pray. Because I don't have one day where I don't have irritations or offenses. Kathy and I are driving here tonight. This guy tries to pull right in front of us. I mean, almost hit us. And he's in one of these big pickups. Now, nothing against pickups. I'm not saying anything about that. There's nothing wrong with having a pickup. But, you know, he had that attitude, and he pulled over in front of us, and Kathy, bless her heart, she said, not here, not now, and didn't let him in. And he let us know what he thought of us. And it bothered me all the way here because my wife was driving. So there was an irritation today, but it wasn't the first one. That was a little offense for sure. But, hey, the solution to dealing with this kind of thing is to walk in humility. When you think to yourself, I'm not all that. I'm not that important in the overall scheme of things. Yes, God loves me enough to give his son to die on the cross for me, but I'm not more important than anyone else. Okay? So we got to learn to trust him with the things that offend and the things that irritate without letting them 
do like a snowball and go down the hill and get larger and larger until you have an avalanche that was begun with a little offense. Humility solves that. When self-important people get offended, they either sow discord or they leave in a huff or they do both. That's what happens. And they do that in churches, and guess what? They do that in marriages. Okay? But the humble person practices the second part of this passage. Let's look at it. He says, read it with me, everybody. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Now, why is he telling us this? This is how you keep unity in your home and in the church. You've got to be patient. And you've got to bear with one another in love. Now, the King James translation of patient comes from a Greek word, macrothumia. And it means long-suffering. You know what long-suffering is? When you suffer long. How's that for profound? Long-suffering is when you suffer long. So he says, he says, I want you to put on the same attitude that Jesus had. How many of you can say tonight, there are times in my life where I know that Jesus in heaven has suffered long with me? Come on. All right? Now, he says, I want you to have the same mind that was in Jesus Christ. And since he has suffered long with you, you suffer. Put it on yourself to be patient, to long suffer with others. That is the character and the likeness of Christ. Short-tempered people who have no time, who have no patience, who, who can't put up with anybody's shortcomings need to grow up. And it begins in the home and it comes into the church. This is exactly what patience entails. It means suffering long. We, we, we're, we're, quick, we're to be quick in dispensing with annoyances. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. It'll cover it. This is one of the keys to maintaining unity. There will be no unity in a church full of short-tempered people. It's not going to happen. So we are to put on uh, macrothumia, long-suffering. So say with me, walk your talk. Get over yourself. Humble yourself in the presence of others. Look yourself in the mirror and say, you're not all that especially before you come to church. Matter of fact, try it this week on the way to church. Everybody in the car, look at each other and say, you're not all that. You are not all that. Now, the third command Paul gives us from, uh, for maintaining unity is, read it with me, guard your church. He literally tells every single Christian to guard their church. Now, let me look at it. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, the phrase, make every effort, is from a Greek word. You're going to learn some Greek tonight. Here it is, spudazo, spudazo. And it means to hasten, to hurry. And then along with that, it means to be zealous or eager or to take pains, make every effort, be conscientious. So let me just put that all together for you. We are to be quick and always zealous, even to the point of personal pain, to guard the unity of the church. 
Did you catch that? I'm going to read that again. Because here's what a lot of people, how, how they view their church. Well, it's, it's all leadership that needs to keep the unity. I'm just here to receive a word, worship a little bit, and go home and live my own life. No, 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 no. You're a member of the body of Christ. You're a finger, you're a toe, you're an arm, you're a hand, you're an eye, you're an ear, you're a mouth. We are all members of the same body, and he's the head. So if a finger hurts, we all hurt. And if our body is really healthy, no fever, no pain, no nothing, it's a healthy body of believers, everybody's happy. But you let one get out of sorts and stay out of sorts, and it begins to infect and affect the entire body of believers. That's what he's telling us. That's what he's telling us. So we're all to guard the unity of the church. We're to, we're to guard it. I mean, and we're to be quick to guard it. Last night, you know, we have dogs. I talk about my dogs a lot. But I can tell when my dogs run outside at night if something's out there that shouldn't be out there that they shouldn't be messing with. It's the bark. You can tell by the tenor of the bark. And I let my little Yorkie out there the other night, and all of a sudden he was going nuts barking. And I looked out there, and you know what I saw out there? Just about five feet from him with its tail raised. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that I just kind of stood there and said, well, uh, uh, when commercial comes on, I'll go out there and take care of him? Oh, Kathy, golly, Max is out there with a skunk. I moved like grease lightning. I ran out there, Max, 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 get away. And I saved him from great tragedy. Okay? Now, when disunity starts to come into a church, it's a skunk. And every believer who sees it should be quick to move on it. I'm preaching good. I'm, I'm going to get this CD myself. I want you to catch this now. Like if you, know about, if you know about disunity that I don't know anything about, it's not for you to say, well, you know, Pastor Jeff will hear about it someday and he'll deal with it. No, it says you make every effort to quickly move on that and deal with it because if we lose unity, we lose blessing, we lose influence, we lose power, we lose effectiveness. And believe me, the devil's strategy is divide and conquer. God's strategy is unify and conquer. So that's what the big deal is about unity, because the world will never believe our testimony of Jesus Christ if we're divided. Not ever going to happen. Look what Jesus said, a new command I give you, that you would love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And love forgives and love humbles itself. Love doesn't seek her own, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, Love considers the other person better than itself. Love walks in humility. And love fights for unity. He also prayed in John 17. He said that they may all be one. That is those who are following me. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see the implication of that verse? That if 
there's not unity, the world won't believe that God sent Christ. Unity in the church is essential to the world believing the gospel. So you think the enemy doesn't know that and you think the enemy doesn't come in and in any way he possibly can try to bring division and disunity into a church, into a local church, into a body of believers so that he can rob it of its testimony and of its effectiveness? Yeah. It's quiet in here tonight. I mean, how badly do you want to reach the world? You know, we have 2,500 names back here and then some. We really want to reach them? What would you think they would think if on November the 9th they came in here and there was a slugfest? If they would say, if that's what God did to you, I'll become a Buddhist. Uh-uh. If they walk in and they sense love and they sense unity and they sense a family, that is one of the key elements to bringing them to conviction and salvation. He said, make every effort to maintain the unity. Now, the word maintain is a Greek military term. It's from a Greek military term. And it means to keep watch over, to guard, to keep, to hold, reserve, preserve. Every single Christian is charged to actively guard the unity of his church. Actively guard it. It's, it's your calling, it's my calling. It's your responsibility, it's mine. And it's every believer on the earth, every believer's on the earth responsibility to guard the unity of their fellowship. And I would say of the church at large. Everything you can, everything you can do to make it better, to maintain the unity, we should do. Now, finally, he commands us to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, the bond. Now, that word bond here denotes what keeps together a house or a garment or different parts of the physical body. Now, we know this. In the case of a house, it's wooden beams keeps that house together. In the case of a garment, it's the stitches. In the case of a human body, it's the ligaments. And those ligaments hold the body together. So this powerful verse might read like this. Be very zealous and quick to guard like a soldier... The unity of the Spirit, even to your own hurt. Do all you can to keep the ligaments strong that hold the church body together in peace. Do all you can do. Because listen, folks, if the church loses its unity, you're the loser, and so am I. We all lose. We all lose. So even to your own hurt, you keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, Kathy and I, early on in our ministry, we got called to serve as a youth pastor. And I did that for a year, had all that fun I could stand and moved on. <laughs> it wasn't my gift. Um, I love the teenagers. Now, we were called to be the youth pastor and the associate pastor of this church, and so we went. Now, when we... What made me go was this. The pastor had promised me something that was pivotal to my receiving the position or not. He made me a promise. It doesn't matter what it was, but he made me a promise. So I said, okay, based on that promise, I'll come. And so we went. 
and days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months. And I realized one day, I woke up one day and realized that, no, he's not ever going to do it. He's never going to do it. And I felt betrayed. I felt deceived. I felt led along. Because there were also two radio stations in this church building. And I opened them both up in the morning. One was country and one was praise and worship Christian. Can you imagine Pastor Jeff opening up a country station and being a country DJ and putting on Dolly Parton? Can you imagine that? And I was doing both of them at 6 in the morning. And then I was preaching and I was leading the youth and I was doing all these various things and it occurred to me there's no way he's going to do what he said. Now, there was a while there, it chewed on my soul. You told me, you're supposed to be a man of God. And Kathy and I prayed, said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I have to do what he promised me he would help me do. I got to do it. So we'll just move somewhere else and I'll do it. Well, it was to finish my college degree. He had promised me that I could do that. Oh, yeah, you can go off a couple of days a week and go finish it, commute and come back and finish your degree. So based on that promise, I went because it was really upon me to finish my degree. So I realized it's not ever going to happen. He's never going to do it. He's not going to make time for me. I would go and say, when can I do it? Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that down the road. You're doing a great job. Well, I saw myself getting on, aging, time slipping by. And I wanted to finish, and I realized he's not ever going to do it. So I had to decide two things. One, I'm not going to hold an offense. Not going to do it. Why? Because my destiny and my calling were more important than an offense. And I wasn't going to allow an offense to ruin my walk with Christ. Second, we made up our minds. We will not tell one person about the promise he broke. Not one person. So we left. We uh, announced to the church that God was moving us on. We'd been there a year. We announced that we were going to be moving on. And, and, uh, when people, and the church loved us by now. I was preaching on Sunday nights. I was ministering to their youth. They had taken us. They, they, had, they had fallen in love with us. They, 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 they loved us being there. And when we left, it shocked everybody. But I said, I'm not going to. So, discord, even though wronged, I'm not going to take away from the unity of this house. So we left. And when we got to where we were going and and we got a place and, well, we moved to Denton. And I started my degree. Man, those church people were calling us. Why'd you really leave? What's really going on? And I just said, oh, man, God just told us to move on. God just told us to go do this and we're doing it. We're happy. Why did we do that? Because I was not going to be responsible for breaking the unity of a church, even if I had been wronged. Do you get it now? Because I understand spiritual authority and spiritual dynamics. If I had Jeff Wickwire been a contributor to breaking the unity of a church, that is visited on me down the road. I know that. So you know what I did? I trusted him and that whole situation to God who said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'll repay. And I moved on and left it there. Do I tell the rest? 
<laughs> a few months down the road, there was a gunfight in that church. And I'm not saying God caused it, but I'm saying in the same way that I could not be guilty of breaking the unity, he had to answer for how he had deceived me. See, folks, you can't sow and not reap. So you got to be careful what you sow. Because if you're instrumental in breaking the unity of a church, I believe it visits on you. God visits it. So it's very, very important that we obey the word of God here, all right? Y'all are really quiet in here tonight. I'm trying to say amen Amen. or oh me. Okay. So let's say the commands together again. Walk your talk, get over yourself, and guard your church. Now next, Paul gives us seven bonds that also contribute to unity. Here they are. Let's read them in verse 4 through 5. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So let's read aloud these seven bonds. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Now these are the things that unite us rather than things that divide us. I think sometimes we view the early church through rose-colored glasses. Oh, I wish I could have been back there in the early church when Pentecost fell. Let me tell you something. They were not the best of times. We look and say, oh, those were the days, you know, Peter's shadow was healing people and Paul was passing out anointed handkerchiefs and demons were coming out and he wasn't charging you for the handkerchiefs. Okay. I just just wish I could have lived back in those powerful Holy Ghost days. Listen, you don't have to read the New Testament for very long at all to realize that division and trouble permeated the early church. For instance, in Corinth, there were bitter factions with one group insisting that Apollos was greatest and the other that Paul was the greatest, and they were fighting over leaders. Well, my leader is the best. No, my leader is the best. Oh, Paul's more anointed. Well, Apollos is a better preacher, and they were fighting over people. And Paul said, are you not carnal when you do that? And then in Galatia, there was conflict between the Christians who wanted to merge their legalistic Judaism with the Christian faith alongside those who stood solely on their freedom in Christ. Paul wanted to know who had bewitched the first group. In Rome, there were preachers who preached while Paul was in prison. And Paul wrote this. He said, they're preaching just to aggravate me, knowing that I can't go preach myself. So they're doing this to bother me. He said, I don't care. As long as Christ is preached, praise God. And then in Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche, two women, couldn't get along. Can you imagine that in church? Two women couldn't get along. (laughs) And had to be told to put up their hatchets. That's in Philippians 4.2. The bottom line is this. We're not to divide over doctrinal non-deal killers. If you don't believe in the gift of tongues, I can fellowship with you even though you're wrong. I'm kidding. See, some of you almost left the church over that one statement. (laughs) See, whether or not you believe in tongues is non-essential. If you believe that you shouldn't eat meat, that doesn't destroy our fellowship. I feel for you, but it doesn't destroy our fellowship. 
If you don't want to play instruments in church like the Church of Christ, or you think for a woman to wear pants is wrong as they do in Pentecostal churches, did you know that? Or you believe that all the gifts of the Spirit passed away when the last apostle died like many cessationists do today, I can still fellowship with you on the common ground of the blood of Christ, okay? If you believe that Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or the beginning of the tribulation, these aren't deal killers regarding unity. But how many times do we see people dividing over issues like I've just listed? That's wrong. Both Augustine and John Wesley, and there were others, but those were two main ones, gave similar versions to what has been called the peace formula. Listen to this peace formula. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, we must be unified. Jesus is the only way to heaven. The Bible is the word of God. Only the blood of Christ covers sins. These are non-negotiables. These are essentials, and we must be unified on those. But in non-essentials like all those I just listed, I'm not going to break fellowship with you over any of those. And in all things, we should walk in love. While we will always have differences in the church, we can still return to the non-negotiable, steadfast, and eternal seven bonds that hold us together. One body, hope, spirit, faith, Lord, baptism, and one God and Father. And we're unified on those. Now, Paul gives a third and a last reason for unity, and here it is. Millions of giftings have been bestowed upon us. How many of you in here seriously question whether or not you have a spiritual gift for ministry? Several, many. All right, good. I want you to catch this now. He said, here's one of the reasons for unity. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word grace here comes from the Greek word charis, like Harris, but charis, which means a gift, a gift. We get the word charisma and charismatic from this word. Now, In our day, if I say to you, gosh, that person over there, have you noticed how how that person over there has such strong charisma? Then we immediately think that, I mean, they are magnetic, they are attractive, they draw you to themselves. That's the way we understand charisma. But that's not the New Testament understanding of charisma. The Greek word charisma means one who has received a gift. From God. So when we talk about the charismatic movement, we mean the movement of spiritual gifts. Charismatic, from charisma, from charis. So the passage might read, but to each of us a gift was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The Lord Jesus measured out to each and every believer a gift. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that? Let me show you in 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. Read this out loud with me. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You know what that verse is telling us? That every single believer has received a charisma, a charis, a gift. Each believer has been gifted. 
And why were we gifted? So that we can serve people with it. God called me to preach. I'm a one-gift guy. I don't sing, dance. I, I don't do any of those. I just teach and preach. But he gave me that gift. Why? Just so I could walk around and have the gift? No. He gave it so that you could be blessed from the gift. But he gave you the gift as well, a gift. And he meant for you to then minister to others and bless others with it. And if you're not doing that, then you're missing a lot of your destiny. Because you've all been gifted. He says in verse 11, whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Whoever serves others as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So everything we do, my preaching, your serving, everything that is done, we do it by the anointing and the strengthening of God so that he is glorified every time we operate in our gift. But all of you, church, have been gifted of God the moment you got saved. So Paul's message is, Not only has each believer received a charis, a charisma, a gift, but God then makes every believer himself a gift to mankind. Can I tell you, you're an answer and not a question mark. In another place, Paul quotes the psalmist David to express this same truth again. Here it is. He said, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Now, when Jesus returned to heaven following his resurrection from the dead, he led, this is what he's telling us, he led Satan and all of his demon cohorts captive, having been defeated by his blood. Paul uses the illustration here of a military victory procession where the conquering general, I love this, leads the prisoners of war through the streets of the capital and distributes gifts to his subjects from the victory. That's what Paul's using. So guess what? The conquering general is the victorious Jesus Christ. The captives are the defeated spirits of Satan. And the gifts are the various spiritual endowments and empowerments given to build up and perfect his body, the church. I love that. So having gifted all of his people, he then sowed his church into the world. He gifted you, then he in turn made you a gift. You are a gift. Every one of you, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So you know what the church is? Like a great big salt shaker and God takes it and he salts the world with his people. He sows us. He gifts us and then makes us a gift. I want you to say with me, he gifted me. Now he wants to make me a gift. You are a gift. You are God's gift to the world. The Jesus in you is God's gift to the world. And nobody can do it quite like you. I can't do your, your call and you can't do my call. We're all unique like snowflakes and all of us have been gifted and then made to be a gift. So he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So he took the church that had been gifted 
and then sowed them into the world. Can we stand together tonight? So guess what? Wherever you are in life, God sowed you there. How much would it change your perspective if tomorrow you woke up and said, wow, I'm just not getting up and going to work and going through another day to pay the bills and try to have enough to retire on someday and live my life out? No, I'm walking out the door as God's sown gift. That's what he said. God's sown gift. Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord. Father, we just thank you right now for helping us to keep and guard the unity of the church. Thank you, Lord, for the wisdom to avoid being unwittingly used of the devil. Lord, thank you tonight that when we got saved, you gave us a gift. And then you turned around and made us a gift sown into the world. Now pray with me, church, and say, Lord, I receive my calling tonight. I have a gift. Help me to know what it is and then to go sow it and bless others. That's the call of God on you. It's so simple, but it's profound. You're not here by mistake. You're not here by happenstance. Thank you, Lord. God has intentionally saved you, put a gift in you, and then sown you into your environment, your circle of influence. In the name of Jesus. I could sing of your love. Let's lift our hands and just thank God.